said earlier, after uh, taking a couple of weeks off to uh, talk about some Easter-related things, we're going to be back into our uh, marriage and relationship series this morning. And um, so gave you a, a couple of weeks to take some, some breaths there between this stuff. And this past summer, I was on sabbatical and uh, read a, that's really like code word for just long vacation for pastors, okay? Um, no, nah, not really. Uh, but I read a book that really challenged my understanding of oneness in marriage. And, and the book was called A Severe Mercy. And it's, it's kind of an older book. But in it, the author uh, described um, his relationship um, with, at the time, you know, all, going all the way back in their history. From the time they dated to the time they got married and kind of up to the time when his wife, uh, Davy is what he called her, um, died at a pretty young age um, from cancer, and what struck me most about their commitment, um, because at the time when they met, they were, they were non-Christians, but they were really devoted um, to knowing each other completely, um, knowing everything about each other, and so when they started dating, they, they set out on this task, that there was going to be nothing that came between them, and so they chose to read all the other person's favorite books, watch the other person's favorite movies, um, listen to all of their favorite songs, uh, whatever their hobbies or interests were, the other one just dove into those and, and just kind of assumed that if, if we're going to be together, then we're going to care about everything that the other person cares about as well. And they called this, um, this quest for, for unity their defense against what they called um, creeping separateness that can happen in relationships. And I want to share just a little quote about what he said about that experience. He said, Inevitably, our closeness was deepened, incredibly deepened, by our doing so. Our thesis that if one of us likes something, there must be something to like about it, which the other could find, was proved again and again. And sharing was union. More and more, as I read her books and knew her music, she was in me and I in her. So what was communicated through that experience with one another was that um, whatever matters to you matters to me to the point where I'm going to immerse myself into the things that are most important to you. I want you to open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 2 right in the very beginning of the scriptures. Starting in verse 20. It says, so the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So two becoming one. I've been a part of a lot of uh, marriages around here. Um, I've officiated many. And one thing that's kind of common with a lot of weddings in today's culture is the lighting of the unity candle. 
And it's, it's supposed to be this ceremony that kind of symbolizes the extinguishing of two individual lives and the coming together of those two lives into one life or one flame as the candle uh, would, would symbolize it. And it's a great picture of what we're trying to accomplish in marriage or what God asks us to try to accomplish. But I really doubt that if I asked anybody who's been through that unity candle ceremony, if they could give me an understanding of how they understand what one flesh means, that I would get some very good answers out of that. I definitely know that when I got married, I could not have told you what that meant. <laughs> what, what does it mean to become one flesh? Um, and what I want to say is that it goes so much deeper than just the physical act of becoming one flesh. So we're going to be talking about the realities besides that reality, okay? Because those, those, that's, that's, that's the easier one of the other things that God calls us to. But this week I came across a, a blog where a guy was preparing to get married, and he was trying to figure out where did this whole unity candle thing originate? And so he, he writes into this, this blog site, and this is what he says. He says, I finally decided to do it and tie the knot. In planning the wedding ceremony, the subject of the unity candle came up. It seems really asinine to me, and I'm trying to get out of doing it. In doing so, I've been trying to find out the history of it. I can't find anything which reinforces my original suspicion that it was made up by the Candle Makers Association of America just to get some extra cash. Oh, wise one, can you tell me the history origin of the dreaded unity candle? So the blogger replies, he says, I tried to find some horror stories of disfiguring wax burns caused by unity candles, but no luck. Maybe encourage your bride to have a surfside ceremony on a very windy beach. Or look deep into your heart and try to figure out why, with all the nonsense that accompanies a wedding, you picked this particular goofy thing to object to. You're not even married yet, and you're already arguing about candles. What's going to happen with the big stuff? So unlike the couple that I read about earlier that fought so hard to know and appreciate every little detail about one another, the more common reality in our world is this, that despite our vows and despite our, our unity candles and our hopes and our dreams for, for intimacy in our marriage, most marriages and couples end up living separate lives. And I have to confess right up front that this very issue of oneness is, is an issue that I have struggled with probably the most in my marriage. Um, I've been married for 20 years now and um, to my wife Kristen, and um, it's still a huge battle. And part of it is because Kristen and I get along so well that it's very easy um, to just kind of coexist and, and be good friends and take care of the kids and all of that stuff without really taking it to the depth of, of really oneness with one another. And so I come here this morning just admitting to you, there, there are probably many of you out there who have been married less than I have that could teach me some things on this topic this morning, okay? So I'm standing before you today really humble and really just saying, you know, as I work through this material myself this week, that God was exposing some things to me that needed to change in my attitude and approach to marriage. And so I'm just a learner here with you today, not an expert on this topic. But before we can begin to understand what God meant by saying that as husbands and wives that we need to be one flesh, we have to understand and begin to understand our oneness with God. 
to remember our kind of guiding principle that we've had this whole school year as we've talked first semester about intimacy with God and now we're talking about intimacy with one another is that all of it begins and has to begin first in our own individual relationship with Christ, our solitude with Him, that we can't move out into community, which would include marriage, until we've spent time with God alone, receiving from Him. And unless we're growing in our understanding of what it means to be one with Him, we can't really go out into other relationships and other contexts like marriage and think that we're going to pull that off. So this idea of oneness is inherent in the very nature of who God is. Let me read a quote for you. It says, Consider how remarkably dissimilar are the members of the Trinity. One, the majestic Father of all, one, a humble man who walked the earth, and one, a wind, a fire, an inscrutable spirit. Any one of these divine persons would do very nicely for a God. Why must they boggle the mind by subsisting together in perfect unity? The Greeks had many gods, but they were jealous of each other and fought. The members of the Trinity, by contrast, are so united that distinct and all-powerful though each is, they are not separate, but one God. I want you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. It's page 751. <clears throat> John chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 20. And this is when Jesus is... In the garden, he's just getting ready to be arrested. And so this is kind of his last you know, time of really intense prayer before he goes to the cross. And so starting in this section, he's praying for all believers who would come after him. And he says this, my prayer is not for them alone. He'd just been praying for his disciples. But he says, my prayer also is for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them, you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So God's very nature is oneness. Okay, Jesus is saying, God, you and I are one. And then he invites us into a relationship with him. And as we are invited into this relationship, we are then grafted into that oneness as well. So now this, this picture, this image of the God and his oneness with the Holy Spirit and the Trinity, he says we get to be a part of that in relationship with him. We become one with God. And then he says, I, want, I, I command you then to be in complete unity also with all other believers. So this whole thing... <laughs> is all about oneness, okay? The Apostle Paul described our oneness with God in a few different writings. In the book of Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gained himself for me. And in the Colossians, he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So he's saying that when you come into relationship with him, your old life, who you used to be, is dead. And you are now this new person, this new reality. 
Let me explain it like this. It says, from the moment a person first believes in Christ, he is united to God in spirit, yet it's the work of a lifetime to fully realize this oneness in daily life. How important is this realization? All important. I venture to say that the whole of the Christian life rests upon the reality of our oneness with Christ. As Paul put it, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. To become a Christian is to do away with oneself so that another, a new self, united to Christ, is resurrected in its place. This resurrection or new life is made possible precisely because of the phenomenon of union. The very word marriage means a joining or uniting of two things. Okay, If you're going to be married to something, you're joined or united to it. And so the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they are married to each other. They are united. They are joined. Okay? And Christ tells us that the relationship that his followers have with him is a marriage as well. So we are invited into this marriage relationship with Christ. And he is not someone that we just believe in. He's not somebody that we just believe things about. But we are joined and united with him. We are one flesh with Christ. So from the very moment that we say, I do, to God... We become one with him. But it takes a lifetime for us to kind of realize that truth. At this reality, our, one with, our oneness with God is so important because any change that's going to happen in our life is only going to come when we begin to live into that reality. Mason, the writer of this book, says this. He says, I stress this point because all progress... All progress in spirituality comes not from striving to be closer to God, but rather in realizing and accepting that already we're one with him. I'm going to read that again. I stress this point because all progress in spirituality comes not from striving to be closer to God, but rather in realizing and accepting that already we're one with him. Now, I want us all to just kind of take a deep breath for a second, okay? Because you didn't know you signed up for seminary class this morning, all right? So um, I'm sorry for making you think so much, but this is really important stuff, okay? And um, so we're going to try to dive in and understand the implications of this. Um, so many people equate closeness or intimacy with God based on the things that they do. So if they have, uh, or this feeling that they get, so if they have a week where, you know, in their mind, they're kind of firing on all cylinders, right? So they're, they're reading their Bible, and they're spending time in prayer, and, and they're examining their lives and confessing their sins, and um, they're showing up to church or to Bible study or small group, and for whatever reason, they feel like they've had some success at managing the sinful patterns in their life that week. When we do those things, sometimes we feel like we have kind of garnered God's favor, that he, he loves us more than if we hadn't done those things, okay? We probably all felt like that at times. But guys, that is not Christianity. Intimacy or oneness with God is a gift. It's given to us. It's not something that we work for. Because we, have been chosen to commit, because we have chosen to commit our lives to Christ through that process of, of yielding our will for his and saying, I do to him, we become one with God. 
Our task then, the rest of our life, is to live like that oneness is true. So, how would that shift in thinking change the way in which you live your life or the things you believe about God? If you knew that the moment that you came into a relationship with Christ, that you are made one with him, that you could not be any more loved, you could not be any more accepted, any more adored, that you were already equipped with the power and the strength that you need to live the kind of life that God wants you to live, that there's nothing that you could do that would separate you from the love of Christ, there's nothing you could, could do that would make him love you more, how would that change the way in which you live your life here on earth in your relationship with God? What do you think that shift in thinking would do? If you woke up in the morning and your goal was not to strive to be one with God, but to realize that you already are, how would that change the way that you live and interact with God? John. That was, that was hard to sum up. <laughs> but basically, you know, that we spend more time maybe trying to, to understand and process that reality of what that really means for us as opposed to striving to figure out how do I do a bunch of stuff to get God's acceptance, okay? Any other thoughts on that? I realize we're treading in deep waters this morning, yes. Or that your oneness with God isn't predicated on whether you screw up or not, yeah. right? So yeah. When you, you know, you're still going to strive, but when you do screw up, you're not like, oh, it's all over because I lost that day. Okay, good. Yeah. So then that becomes a very um, fine line that we walk to not just think, well, then I can just do whatever because he's just going to accept me and love me, right? So, yeah, but realizing that, yeah, if we do screw up, it's not the end of the world. He knew we were going to to begin with. Other thoughts? Yeah, Eric. Mm. Yeah, instead of having this view when life is difficult, we're going through trials and saying, God, why are you doing this to me? We have this understanding that if we're one with him, that he's right there with us. He's enduring the same pain with us. He's in it, 
right? That's great. Good. Yeah, Devin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An understanding of our oneness and acceptance of God takes out the highs and lows of the extremes that we get because we base so much on our performance that we can rest in that sense that we are one with God. For me, the thing that came to mind with me is I really believe I'm really one with God and, and that I have access to everything that he has. I have access to his power and his strength in my life, then I can't sit around with this defeatist attitude that I can never change or that I can never overcome this or that. I have the power of the living God inside of me, and if I believe that, nothing's impossible for him. So I can't make excuses. I can't be defeatist and and say that's never going to happen. I can't look at other people who are followers of Christ who are struggling and say, well, they're just never change. Not if I believe that the God of the universe is in them, that they're one with him, Okay, so it totally would radically shift the way that we see life, see ourselves, see the world, see other people, okay? So God is one, Father, Son, and Spirit, and in Christ, we are one with him. And when we most realize and embrace that reality is when we're going to see the biggest growth and change in our life. So now with that foundation in mind, not that you're actually living that way, but that maybe you have the beginnings of an understanding if that's what we're striving for, we're going to try to convert over into the topic or the arena of marriage and see how this applies, okay? So let's take a look at Matthew 19. Haven't you, he replied, that at the beginning of the creation, haven't you heard, I think is what I'm supposed to say, that at the beginning of the crea- creation, God made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. From the moment you stand before the minister and you say, I do, you become one with your spouse. It's not something that you only get over years of striving and trying to, you know, get to know each other and and really think alike and all that kind of stuff. It is a gift granted to you The moment that you stand up there in that altar and you make that commitment, God says, in my eyes, you are one. That is a reality. Take a look at this quote. It says, oneness in marriage, as with God, is not a skill to be mastered. Rather, it's a phenomenon to be marveled at with increasing humility and gratitude. In Ephesians 5, which we've been spending a lot of time talking about during this marriage series, Right after Paul quotes that verse that we looked at in Genesis 2 that tells us that the two will become one flesh, he says this. He says, this is a profound mystery. Isn't that the truth? That's why this dang sermon was so hard to write this week. (laughs) How do you put into words a profound mystery? It's not easy, all right? And I probably made a pretty poor attempt at it today. But all of it is. All of it is. The oneness of the Trinity, the the oneness that we have with Christ, the oneness that we have with our spouse, all of it is mind-blowing and hard to fathom and grasp, especially then what the implications of that is and how to live if that's the truth. But here's the deal. We can never understand 
the one flesh reality with our spouse if we don't first understand that we are one with God. We have to get that first. And so, again, it, it always comes back to our individual relationship and understanding with God. If we don't go there first, we're not going to be able to pull it off in marriage. It is there that we practice in that one time with God, our solitude with him, we practice learning from him and receiving from him what we know is true about us, what God says is true about who we are, so that when we enter into other relationships and marriage relationships and friendships, we're not seeking our identity in them. We've already got our identity because we've spent time with God and listened to him telling us who we are. Okay? That's why that's so critical. If we really live in this reality that we are already one with our spouse, then how will this look? How will it play out? Let me read this. This was really interesting. What strange advice this is, that to be at peace with our spouse, we should simply be at peace. Yet this is all the advice the Bible offers. Over and over we hear, be at peace with each other. Don't quarrel. Get rid of anger. If only we could grasp who it is we're yelling at picking at, berating, manipulating. If only we could remember who lies in the bed beside us or looks back at us across the breakfast table. It is, or might as well be, ourselves. Paul says exactly this in Ephesians 5, 28 and 29. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. So how can I be bitter with myself or be frustrated or filled with hate or impatience? Would I treat myself the way that I treat my spouse sometimes? It's easy to have those kinds of feelings towards your spouse when you're living as if you're two separate individuals. But if you see yourself as one, you would never want to treat yourself the way you treat your spouse sometimes. You see, here's, here's, the, here's the hinge point, guys. <laughs> it's when we separate ourselves and we see our spouse as this other that, that we then feel like we have this liberty to give to them what they've got coming to them. If we saw them as us, we probably would want to treat them pretty well because we take care of ourselves pretty well, don't we? We love our own body. All right. Even though this is a profound mystery, I'm going to try to give you some practical things to walk away with here today, okay? Because this is a lot of theology. I'm going to try to bring it home a little bit and how we can begin to live like this. What will increase our ability to live as if we are one with our spouse? The first thing is, and believe me, guys, what I'm saying here today, if you aren't married, don't check out. Because everything I'm talking about, God also calls us to do in community with others. He says, I want you to be in complete unity with other believers. So friendships could have the same principles here. And then one day, some of you guys might be married. Okay? So if you don't understand your oneness with God, it's going to be hard for you to understand how to be one with your spouse. So stay with me. The first thing that we're going to look and, and focus on to help with this oneness is a shared time of prayer. And Mason, the writer of this book, The Mystery of Marriage, he, he describes the power of praying together like this. He says, like lovemaking, prayer requires, in a sense, taking off the clothes, removing the shoes to touch holy ground, 
Such acts of deep communion beyond mere communication carry tremendous power for healing and renewal. To pray together is to draw water from the same well. Each time they go there, the bond of oneness, the very secret of their marriage, is strengthened. I find it impossible to stay mad at somebody that I'm praying with. When I bow my head and I come before God with somebody who I have a strained relationship with, and in doing that act of humility, the the thing that I'm communicating and I'm remembering is that God has mercy on me to a level at which I don't deserve. So as I come before God and that reality is, is at the very front of my mind, then it becomes impossible for me to look at this person who I have a strained relationship with or I'm struggling with and to say, well, I want that from God, but I'm going to deny that to you. I'm going to keep being bitter. I'm going to keep harboring unforgiveness. We can't do that (laughs) if we ourselves want to receive that from God. Couples who understand this truth will fight to come together when they least want to. When our spouses hurt us, the last place that we want to be with them is in a vulnerable place of prayer. It's not going to feel good. What we would rather do is retreat to our corners so that we can be justified in our actions and and continue to act like we're two individuals. That passage that we looked at in Genesis 2 says, a man will leave his father and mother And then the King James Version says, and cleave to his wife. And that word cleave has two meanings. And we talked about one of those meanings about two months ago when we began this series and we talked about the fact that marriage is a covenant relationship as opposed to a consumeristic relationship. And we defined the word cleave at that time as being glued together, an inseparable bond. Okay, that's, that's a picture of what cleaving to your wife, your husband, is. It's an inseparable bond, okay? There's a second meaning of that word cleave that we're going to talk about this morning, and that second meaning is this, to pursue hard after. Now, you can probably remember that time when you were dating, and it felt like you were pursuing hard after this other person. But God says, I want you to continue to pursue hard after them. We don't just stop because we got the ring on the finger, right? And especially when it comes to this arena of prayer, because this is such a battle for us, that we would pursue hard after that, because God knows. God knows the healing and uniting power that prayer has. But guess who also knows it? Satan. And the last thing that the enemy wants us to do is to humbly come before God and to pray together. And so he is going to make it so that it's the last thing that we want to do when we're struggling or even when things are going well, anytime. So that's the first practical step is praying together. That's going to help you grow in oneness, okay? The second practical step towards oneness is to extend unconditional love to your spouse. That same unconditional love that we want from God that unconditional love that God gives us that says this, it accepts us just as we are, 
without judgment, without criticism. It doesn't say that we have to do anything to earn it. We don't have to change in any way for God to continue to unconditionally love us. He loves everyone unconditionally, whether they're a Christian or not. Okay? How is it that we, that very love that we desire so deeply from God, we are willing to deny the person who we say we love more than anyone else on this earth? And we place conditions on our love and that relationship. The old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, contains the line, prone to wonder, wander with an A, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You see, our natural inclination is less towards oneness and more towards increasing separateness. We are prone to wander. Oneness requires so much vulnerability that we resist it. I want to leave you with this quote today. There's a secret resentment of the demands of marriage, a reluctance to give away any more than is absolutely necessary. There's a constant temptation to pull back from the full intensity of the relationship, to get along on only the basic requirements. But set against this is the constant challenge to give more and more of oneself at deeper and deeper levels and to see in one's partner a most abundant and perfect channel for the outpouring of the grace of God into one's life. Guys, the purpose of marriage is to reflect the glory of God. And so in marriage, we have this opportunity to reflect the oneness of God and to reflect the oneness that we have in relationship with him to a fallen world around us. It's a reality that God says is already true. So right now, it doesn't matter whether you feel one with your spouse or not. You are one. So your goal as you leave from here is to try to figure out how do I live like that's true, not how do I try to make it happen. You understand the difference of what I want you to do as you walk away from here. When you pray this week, I want you to pray, God, help me to realize that I am already one with my spouse. (laughs) How do I live into that oneness? Because when we do that, guys, when we get it, it is a testimony to the world. That's why God wants us to be married. (laughs) And he says that that's a great relationship because it mirrors his oneness and the impact that when a couple get that they are one, the impact of that on this world is unbelievable. Not only for your kids who are living in your home and watching you be married, but your friendships that are around you, the people that you work with and an unbelieving world around you. When they see you living as one, I have to believe that it has unbelievable potential to speak the truth of God into this world. Guys, you will spend the rest of your life trying to apply what we just talked about this morning. So this is not something to be accomplished before we get back together next Sunday, all right? So thank you so much for hanging in there with me. You probably need to listen to my message about four times, okay, to really let it soak in because it was, it's deep stuff. So anyways, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
Lord, I just want to thank you that I don't even understand it all. Lord, you tell us this is a profound mystery. And we have these finite minds and we're trying to understand an infinite God. And so, Lord, we don't even get the fact that you can be three and one at the same time. And, Lord, we don't, we don't get that, you know, somehow by committing to you and being in relationship with you, with you that we become one with you. And, Lord, we don't even get what it means to be one flesh in marriage. But, Lord, we sure want to. So, God, I just pray that supernaturally that you would expand our mind's ability to get it. And God, we would start living like it's already true and not basing so much of it based on how we feel at the time. And Lord, we would take some practical steps this week to to grow in our oneness with our spouse if we're married, that we would pray together. Lord, I know that's a battle. And so God, I pray that we would see that it's a battle. We might even ask other people to pray for us that we would pray. I pray that we would extend unconditional love. And I pray that we would just stop seeing each other as two different people, two separate individuals. We would begin treating our spouse like ourselves. Help this mystery make sense to us, God. We we beg you to come and help us to understand it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close today?